Please remain standing as you are able, and if you'll follow after me as we recite the Shema, which Jesus called the Great Commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Elheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're in Matthew 25 uh, this morning, beginning in verse 37 through 40. It's part of a large parable that Jesus told while Jesus was telling a series of parables in Matthew 25 having to do with good and, and, uh, and poor, wise and poor choices and the effect that that had um, uh, in, in the face of a coming judgment. So in this one, he's talking about some people that were separated um, at the end day into uh, sheep on the Lord's right and goats on the Lord's left. And it turns out what distinguished them was uh, how they had acted uh, toward people in need. And so we pick up the story in verse 37. And then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and give you food or thirsty and give you something to drink? When were you a stranger and we took you in? And when did you not have clothes and we gave you clothes? And when did we see you sick or in prison and we came to see you? And the king will say to them, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I was thinking this week about one of the uh, hardest classes uh, I had had in, uh, in graduate school. And it was a difficult class, but the professor, I guess, was going to do us a favor. So at the time of the final exam, he says, there's only going to be one question on your final exam. And you can write on it two, two and a half hours, whatever you got. And he said, and I'm going to give you that question ahead of time. So I thought, well, this is a pretty good deal. And then uh, what he did is he proceeded to hand out four questions, and he said, one of these will be on the exam. (laughs) And you need to be prepared to write for two and a half hours on any one of the four. I didn't find that very helpful at all. I I like the way the Jews did it better. Jews in Jesus' day, um, to illustrate, would tell parables and and stories. And one of the stories that they would tell is when you get to the gate of heaven, they're going to ask you four questions. Another version had six questions. Uh, And you know in advance the questions. and, And the good news is they're short answer. And the four questions in Jesus' day, they said you would answer at the gate of heaven, um, uh, were these. The first one was, were you ethical and honest in your business dealings? The second question is, did you make time to study the Torah? Or we'd say study the scripture. Uh, The third um, question had to do, did you follow the commandment to be fruitful and multiply? In other words, did you try to have a family? And then uh, the fourth one uh, was this, were you waiting for your redemption and the kingdom of heaven? Now, some versions, they'd add two more. One was, did you go on to seek wisdom in your life? And then the last one is, did you fear heaven? Which means, were you in a sense of awe about God or a sense of worship? And so those were the six. You knew them in advance. Fairly short answer. Well, I think Jesus was even able to, in a sense, cut through that and get even to perhaps one question. Jesus tells an interesting parable about the separation of the sheep and the goats, and it all seems to come down to one issue, which is, 
What did you do with people in need? How did you respond to the need and the pain around you? Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't even ask the question here. Jesus just tells a story. They supply the question. They say, Lord, when did we ever see you in that kind of situation? And Jesus says, well, uh, when you did it to one of the least of these, somebody, in other words, in pain or suffering or struggle, you have done it to me. There it is. One question, it seems. And I think that probably makes some of us nervous. Any parable that has to do with judgment already makes us nervous. None of us really likes to think about judgment. Another, uh, I don't even know, like at your work, if you even enjoy the annual evaluation time or now the the semi-annual evaluation. Um, But when you get to a parable judgment, it makes us nervous. But I think part of what you need to realize is that if, if something is evaluated, that means it's important. So really, the point here by telling this parable is just to say what you do with your lives matters to God. How you interact with other people matters to God. And that's really the main point Jesus is trying to get across. And you say, well, it has to do with judgment and the end. And and the answer I give you is, it's a story. It's, It's a parable, and you can't expect a parable to explain to you all the details about what's going to happen. It's just trying to give you a truth that you can get a hold of. So, for example, Jesus tells another parable according to the Gospel of Luke. He said there was a, a rich man and had a poor person outside their gate every day and didn't help them. They died. Uh, rich man ended up in torment. Uh, the poor man uh, is eating feasts there with the Lord. And, and the rich man looks up to heaven and goes, well, this isn't a good deal for me. I need to go warn my brothers that they don't make the same mistake and end up in this kind of torment. Now, there are some people that will take this parable and try to make the details, details of uh, of our life after this earth. And they'll say, did you know you can look from heaven into hell and from hell into heaven? And the answer, I would say, is no, because it's a parable. It's a story. It's trying to illustrate a truth, just like uh, the prodigal son doesn't explain everything about Christianity. Stories are told to make a particular point and the story here is told to make the point what you do with people in need matters to god you ought to be fairly attentive um, to this issue we can't expect it to be a systematic theology of what happens when i die but rather to it answers more the question what kinds of things are important to god and one of the answers is well it's fairly important how we treat others and it's it's a significant question But what I think is interesting is when Fred Craddock talks about this, he says, in all of his years as a pastor, and I would concur, I've had 36 years, very few people have come up to me with this one question and want to talk about it. They've talked to me about, well, what do you think heaven is like? Or do you think these people that haven't heard about Jesus go to hell? Or or, or what do you think hell is like? But nobody ever comes up to me and says, how do you think I'm doing with human need? How do you think I'm doing responding to people in their pain? Or or what's our church doing when we run into people who are suffering? It's interesting. We want to talk about predestination or uh, certain things people uh, believe or they shouldn't believe. And those aren't unimportant. But in the view of Jesus in Matthew 25, they're not the main thing. He's getting ready to leave them. He's getting ready to be crucified and then um, resurrected and ascend and to ascend. And he says, I want to tell you some stories. And one of them is this is something you need to ask yourself about. And so it's fascinating to me that we'll ask about everything else but this. And, And I'm the same way. 
I wonder sometimes if it's a little bit of denial in, in my part. If I won't talk about it, then I don't have to think about it. Um, I'm reminded of my friend and colleague, some of you remember Mark Williams, when Mark's wife, Emily, uh, started a residency in psychiatry in South Carolina, he had to transfer from this branch of Methodism over to South Carolina. And they had an interesting process where they would put you through four 45-minute intense interviews and divided into four subjects and uh, four different committees, and they would bombard you for 45 minutes. And he said, I felt really good about three of them, but one of them's a little shaky, and it's kind of controversial. He said, I'm a little nervous about this, so he came up with a plan. When he got into that last one, 45 minutes in that group, he went ahead and asked the group a controversial question. He said, about this, what do you think? And for 45 minutes, all those pastors argued with each other, and they never asked him a single thing about it. And he just walked away. It's actually very biblical. You probably remember Jesus had, uh, uh, was uh, uh, trapped between two people and got the Pharisees and Sadducees arguing with each other. Paul did the exact same thing when he was cornered one time. Pretty good strategy, but sometimes I wonder if I divert myself with extraneous questions rather than to go after this question. Now, some people say, well, isn't this like some sort of works versus faith? I don't think Jesus understands what you're talking about. Faith and works dichotomy is something that our good friends in the Reformation gave us four centuries ago from the way they wanted to read Paul. Jesus would have assumed that if you had faith and believed in him, you would act in certain kinds of way. So really, it's not so much a final exam. You know, the final exam I took so many years ago, I don't remember any of the four questions or what the answers were. Yeah. And sometimes final exams, they come and they go. I think this is more like a blood test. You know how it's kind of hard to study for a blood test? You know, it just kind of reveals who you've been for most of your life or, or where you are. And I think when we think about this question, it's, it's sort of like that blood test. And it reveals, what do you think your walk with faith has been? How do you think you're doing in your walk with God? And, and what you do is, well, answer this question. When you find human need, how do you respond? And that's a pretty good marker for you to take in to your checkup. And so, if you'll grant me that this morning, in this parable, let me just say, if, if they happen to pop this question to you at the gate, um, here's how I think you might be able to be prepared. And it's not about going to heaven or hell. Uh, judgment tends to be more like evaluation to help us go on and, and be better. A lot of people think we're going to die and float on clouds, which is some of us why we have resistance to dying. Um, no, I think scripturally, we continue growing, living, loving, and learning. And so what better way to do that than to have some sort of look at our life and figure out where we might need to continue to grow. It's like the football team. doesn't matter whether they win the game or lose the game. There's the game film. And they look at it so they can grow. So to get ready for this question for your growth, um, my doctor, to kind of get me ready, will tell me why you need to avoid eating this, or you need to eat more of this, or you need to do this exercise, or you need to take this medication. I want to give you three things I think might help you. The first one is this. If you want to be more responsive to human need, you're going to have to develop the ability to look underneath the disguises that people wear. 
When I first used to read this parable, I used to think, well, okay, those are these, I gotta do these six things. I gotta find somebody hungry and feed them, somebody thirsty and give them water, uh, somebody that doesn't have much clothes and, and, and give them some clothes, somebody who's new to town, welcome them in, somebody's in the hospital, go see them, somebody in jail, go see them. And I remember the, the day I finally checked off the last box, I had somebody, uh, in one of my churches in jail. And I was excited to go see them, not because I wanted to minister, but finally I can walk out of there and go, bingo, got all six. Then I realized a parable is not like that at all. It's not exhaustive. It's suggestive. It just says, when there's human need around you, what are you doing with it? And so how do I get more responsive to human need? The, the first thing is start looking underneath the disguises that people wear because human need is as close as the person who's next to you or on the pew just across from you. But people are pretty good at wearing disguises. And and it's not as obvious as the hospital. And it's not as obvious, perhaps, as the prison. And it's not as obvious as someone who's, who's very hungry. But there's need there nonetheless. But people are pretty good at disguising that need. Did anybody watch The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? If not, you've seen it in the last 40 years probably once or or twice. You may remember it was on this week that when Charlie Brown's crew uh, goes out um, to trick-or-treat, they all wear the same costume. It's a white sheet. They cut um, uh, holes for their eyes, and they go as ghosts, except for Snoopy, of course, who goes as a a World War I fighter pilot. But um, anyway, uh, so coming, they're all there in their costume, all looking the same, and Pigpen walks in. Do you remember Pigpen? You recognize Pigpen because he's got this dust and dirt that just goes with him everywhere. So he walks in in the same costume and they go, hi, Pigpen. He's like, how did you recognize me? Well, it wasn't hard. Well, in real life, it is hard. People are so good at putting up the veneer that says, I'm okay. I'm good. Everything's fine at our house. Uh, And you've got to look a little deeper. I'm reminded of uh, Charlie Chaplin. Do you remember Charlie Chaplin? Great comedian, 100 years ago. Very distinguished look. I mean, you could identify him, a little mustache and everything. Well, the story goes that apparently Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest, and he finished fourth. (laughs) People are pretty good at presenting to you the image they want you to see. You have to get closer. You have to listen And listen behind what they said so that you can be in a position to meet that need. Second thing I would suggest is not only do you have to learn to to get close enough to look under people's disguises, you have to learn to take off your own disguise. We're pretty good also at saying, okay, at our house. Sure, my teenager was missing for 12 hours Thursday night, but everything's good at our house. Sure, I hate my job and I'm planning to quit tomorrow, but it's all good in my life. And... It seems to me if we want to deny um, our struggles, then we are denying other people their opportunity to do what God put them here to do, which is to help us as well in our time of pain and need. You know, sometimes it'll be obvious, and someone will be hungry, and you'll know it, and they'll be poor, or they'll be a stranger, and it'll be obvious. But sometimes it won't be as obvious, and we have to look underneath their disguise, and then they have to look under ours. Let's do them a favor and just take the disguise off. Let's go ahead and just let them know how it really is. I love what Brene Brown talks about, the power of vulnerability, that just unlocks so much in relationship when you're able to say, no, it's really not that great. This is what happened last week. This is where I'm struggling. And then they get invited to do the thing that Jesus says he'd like to know about. 
in their life as well as our life. And then finally, what the text teaches us today is whenever we do see pain, whether it's real obvious or whether we've had to dig a little to look underneath the disguise, one of the things that will help us is to recognize when we help another person, it is as if we're helping Jesus. I'm not saying that other person is Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying what the scriptures teach us is that helping that person is the same as helping Jesus. And this would have been very clear in Jesus' day. The rabbis had a saying that whenever a poor person shows up at your village, your town, or at your door, the Holy One, blessed be he, in other words, God the Father, is at that, that stranger's right hand. And whatever you do for that stranger, you will be doing for the Holy One. So there was that sense that when you help others, you're actually helping God. And, and to, to be able to see and appreciate uh, just how much we're doing, I think, to rightly value the person as someone who represents Christ and then to rightly be motivated for, by Christ who's done everything for us that we might do something for him. And I don't think it's going to be that hard to recognize Jesus. Our, our intern, Chris, is um, perhaps the, the most enthusiastic Spurs fan I know. So Chris, I think, has assured me this is true. That most of the time, Jesus is not going to look like the Spurs Jesus that shows up at the games. You ever seen Spurs Jesus with the robe, the beard? Jesus is not generally going to look like what you expect him to look like. And quite frankly, he's probably not even cheering for the team that you want Jesus to cheer for. Jesus is probably going to come in the form of some deep need and an invitation to reach out to that need. I once asked Mother Teresa, what do you see? and the lepers, and the dying in, in the streets of Calcutta. And her response was amazing. She said, I see in them Jesus in distressing disguise. If we could learn to see him, we might be rightly motivated. Reminded of a story I heard about a guy that's having a garage sale. And so he's got some paintings he's trying to get rid of in the garage sale. So he prices one for eight bucks. So a woman comes at the garage sale, and she actually is very interested in this painting, but it's a garage sale, so she haggles and finally talks the guy down to five bucks. It's a deal. So he's happy because he's rid of the painting. She's happy. She thinks she's got something. And so the next Monday morning, just to see if she's got something, she goes to the local art dealer. He says, let me do some research. Calls her back with the news. What she has is an authentic work from the late Jackson Pollock, and it's probably worth close to $50 million. How do you feel if you're that guy having the garage sale? You've whiffed on this one. 50 million, you valued it at eight, and just for the icing on the cake, eight dollars, you lowered it to five. How would you feel? And I think Jesus tells the story, and underneath it is another question. He's just asking me, How would you feel if you were the one who whiffed on Jesus? How would you feel if you were the one who missed him right? In front of you. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may see you in our brothers and sisters. Lord, open our ears that we may hear the cries of the hungry, the cold, the frightened, the oppressed. 
Lord, open our hearts that we may love others as you love us. Renew us in your spirit. Lord, free us and make us one. Amen. Today, as we join in the singing of our closing hymn, we will also be welcoming new members into our midst. So I invite you to stand as you are able and let us join in the third and fourth stanzas of We Gather in Christ. It's kind of hard to get them right here in the front. We had a Saturday class, and uh, we have uh, some people from uh, the last month's class as well. Uh, anytime that you'd like to know more about uh, uniting with Alamo Heights Methodist Church, I'd be glad to talk with you about it. My name's Troy Dunn. I'm going to announce our newest members, uh, which is a slew of them, and then I think we have a baptism. We have first Robert and Virginia Duncan. Uh, Veterinarians, right? Okay. Okay, Daniel and Tiffany Long, uh, Lisa and Danny uh, Bentley, correct? Okay, we've got Rebecca and Andrew Cord, Ellen Frazier, and Pam and Jason. And who you have with you? Zane, Zoe, and Ava. All right. We're glad that you're here. And we have Kelly, Flores, and Maurice. And Kelly, your name's upside down. Before we uh, ask you the questions that we ask of anyone coming to church, when you join the church, there's kind of a, a two-part thing. One is that you become part of the larger family of God through the Christian church, and that happens through the act of baptism. And then you become a part of a particular branch of the family of God, and that happens uh, this morning as you become uh, Methodist and part of the family here at Animal Heights. But first, Danny, will you come forward as we're going to... Um, um, uh, Baptize Danny into uh, the Christian faith. Danny, welcome. And um, I'm going to baptize you. And on the same questions that I'm going to ask everybody else in a moment, and so I'm assuming positively that you'll answer these to repent of, of your sin, accept the power God has you to become a new person in Christ, and to uh, accept Christ as your Savior and promise to serve Him as your Lord. Great. 
Let us pray. Grace and love of God, I bless you for all that you've done for us, the life, death, and baptism of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And pray that your Holy Spirit comes upon this water and Danny that he may know uh, that he is a son in your family. This we ask in your Son's name. Daniel, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. And I guess since you're already looking this way, I'll ask you this question, and that is uh, this. And uh, uh, Do you um, truly and earnestly repent of your sin? If so, will you say, I do? And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and promise to serve Him as your Lord? Would you say, I do? And then finally, will you support the United Methodist Church and this church through your prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness? If so, will you say, I will? We're very privileged to have you as part of our family. And I know after Donna's benediction, uh, on your way to the bouncy bounces or food trucks or wherever we're going, I hope that you'll greet our new members at that time. So, Donna, I'll turn it over to you. And also, uh, if you desire communion this morning, we will be uh, offering it on, at the side rails today. What a joy it is to welcome each and every one of you as our newest uh, members of our family of faith and for all of us who are called to follow Christ in this place. May we seek to have those compassionate hearts of God within us so that in one another and all we meet, we find Christ in disguise and offer our love to him in his name. Let us go now with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>